from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. My name's Kelly Williams, and I'm currently serving as an elder on session here at First Pres. Please join me in our call to worship. The path is unknown to us, O Lord. We fear the journey. Dangerous. Help us, Lord, be with us. You have been our hiding place. You sing to us of deliverance and hope. Friends, let us worship God. Our first scripture reading is from Exodus 1, 8 through 14, on page 47 in your pew Bibles. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase, and in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us, and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities Pithom and Ramses for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so that the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. The Egyptians became ruthless in imposing tasks on the Israelites and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in every kind of field labor. They were ruthless in all the tasks that they imposed on them. Friends, our second scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Listen now for God's word to you and to me this day. What then? Are we any, any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There's no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together, they have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There's not even one. Their throats are opened graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their paths. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, Let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space uh, this morning, even to be more like your son, Jesus the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, on February 11th, 1941, uh, one of Adolf Hitler's favorite generals, Erwin Rommel, was designated commander of the German-African Corps. Uh, From that year until their surrender in 1943, this force was charged with shoring up and advancing uh, German interests in northern Africa. Uh, In response to that growing military uh, presence, British and allied forces began mobilizing troops and mobilizing supplies in Egypt. Now, just south of of Cairo, there's a locale called Torah, and it was in those quarries just outside of that town where some of this stockpiling took place. We heard a story that Boyd read about these storehouse stockpiling cities from long ago. Uh, This story that I'm telling you now is is more of a contemporary version of that, where this specific area in Egypt becomes this storehouse place. Now this quarry uh, south of this city and town called Torah was originally dug in ancient times and at some point during this stockpiling process, at some point as as people were bringing supplies into uh, Egypt on behalf of the British and allied forces, some men stumbled upon a rock formation that wasn't natural. It was obvious to them that it was positioned by human hands. And so they began to dig around and they discovered uh, papyrus. And and inside of this papyrus were manuscripts of 6th and 7th century manuscripts uh, from a writer known as Didymus the Blind. Didymus the Blind. He was, in fact, a church father and his uh, writings were part of a, of a group of, of writers and teachers during some of the most important and formative times of Christian history. Now Didymus, despite being stricken with blindness uh, when he was four years old, was quite uh, a learned man. Even with his impairment, he mastered uh, the disciplines of dialectics and geometry and theology. In fact, as I said, he was part of this cohort of leaders and and teachers. He actually was positioned as one of the leaders in Alexandria, Egypt, during the 4th century. And he was part of this group that uh, taught and preached and utilized a method for interpreting the Bible called the allegorical method, a technique called the allegorical method. The 1941 discovery outside of Torah contained uh, Didymus' writings specifically utilizing this method for interpreting the Bible. Many of his commentaries were found in 1941 employing this particular technique. Now, to, to summarize what the allegorical method is all about, I'll turn to Augustine, who, when writing in the 5th century, said this about the Scriptures. He said, the Bible and the scriptures have two senses to them. He said, there is first a literal, fleshly, historical sense. 
that is bound to a particular time and a particular context. But Augustine also said there is an allegorical or mystical or spiritual sense to the Scriptures, a sense that, that almost transcends context, a sense that transcends time, a sense that provides profound theological insights and truths. Now this method in the, in the third and fourth and into the fifth century was, was used not just as sort of a, just a regular technique that you use for biblical interpretation, it also had a purpose. It had a purpose for instructing the earlier church, the established church at this time, the established church that's becoming more established under Constantine's rule, right, the permission that the church has to freely function and freely be a Christian community, it's teaching, these allegorical methods were, were helping teach Christian theology and Christian doctrine to that now established church. Because during this particular time, there was great challenge as to what Christian theology was all about, especially when it came to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. What did his life mean? What did his death mean? What did his resurrection mean? What did the, the, the giving of the Holy Spirit mean? And so there were different uh, factions and different groups trying to figure it out. And, and quite often, preachers and Bible teachers would use the allegorical method to talk about Christian theology, to talk about who Jesus Christ is and was and who he will be. Now, I want to offer a quick example of, of the allegorical work sort of an action. And I want to use a story that I think, despite our, our literacy when it comes to the Bible, I think all of us will know. The story of Noah, right? Nod your head if you've heard that story before. Noah and his ark. And, and, you, and you know that story, I think, from your Sunday school days or from popular culture, right? Noah uh, is chosen by God, he and his family, and two animals of every kind to build an ark so that they can be safe as God has become displeased by the disobedience of humanity. The wickedness of, of humanity has come before the Lord, and God is going to exercise God's wrath on all of humanity and does so through a great flood. And only Noah and his family and two animals of every kind are saved. And you know how that story goes where, where after the, the floods uh, recede and, and, and the sun begins to shine once more, that a rainbow is put in the sky. And a rainbow, of course, is something that's part of the natural world. They, they happen, but, but in this writing it says that God had hung the bow in the sky to, to signify a promise that God would never destroy the earth again through a flood. And so for those who are reading this text and are being formed by this text, that, that, that's a sign of God's sovereign activity and God's grace in starting afresh and bringing the dead to life and a, and a symbol of promise, a symbol of hope. But, but we could read it from an allegorical perspective as well, that it not only becomes this rainbow, this bow that's placed in the sky, not only a symbol of hope for Noah, but it's also pointing us to the ultimate symbol of hope, who is Jesus Christ, pointing us to his atoning work on the cross. You see, the rainbow is shaped like a bow, and, and in the Hebrew, it's, it's literally talking about a, a military bow, like a bow and arrow. 
And no longer is that bow facing down. Imagine an arrow being placed in it. No longer is it facing down. No longer is the arrow pointed at humanity. God is saying, no longer will I exercise my wrath and vengeance in this way, but the, but the bow is turned up. The bow is facing God, God's self. And this points the Christian church to what has taken place 2,000 years ago on a hill called the Skull when Jesus Christ took the arrow for us. He took the, the sin of the world, the arrow that we deserve and has wiped our sins clean. Do, do you see how it works? This allegorical approach, it's not just about the, what the bow means in Noah's time, but it also is pointing to this transcendent truth about what God has done in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Now, when I was in seminary, uh, we were taught the history of allegorical methodologies for interpreting the Bible. We learned about the history of the allegorical approach, but we were also taught implicitly and explicitly to really steer clear of them. By 1941, in the discovery of Didymus's writings, biblical scholarship had already moved way beyond that technique for teaching and interpreting the Bible. See, in most mainline seminaries, like the one I attended, we were taught that serious biblical scholarship and interpretation should be focused on the historical and literary aspects of the text. The key questions were taught, we were taught to ask, rather, uh, did not necessarily involve or revolve around the quest for timeless or transcendent spiritual insights or, or even theological truths that would root the Christian faith, but had more to do with how the text functioned within the context it was written and read. What did the text mean for the people originally hearing it? Or what did the text mean for those who are being shaped by these words, their beliefs, their morality, their religious life. Sure, you could extrapolate meaning for our time and our place, but only after, only after you figured out what it meant in the time and the place that it was written. This is all sort of just a precursor to what we are about to experience during this Lenten season as we embark on these six weeks of Lent. I want to be very clear that in these sermons, I hope to in no way diminish these important historical and literary instructions I learned in seminary. Just to be clear, Ryan. But for this particular sermon series, I want to supplement that. I want to go back. I want to Take it old school, I mean real old school, and use the allegorical method to trace the steps of one of the most famous journey stories ever written. Israel's liberation from Egypt and their long journey home to the promised land. And as we follow them, as we follow the people of God, Using the book of Exodus as our guide, we will stop with them in the places they stop. We begin to see the things that they see, but also to begin to draw and discern parallels 
for the spiritual life, for the Christian life. And, and hopefully in this season of Lent, which is a deep season of reflection, that we would reflect on the fundamental theological truths that shape the challenging road we're on, a road we call faith and life. And so we begin in Exodus 1. And there we are told that the chosen people of God have become subjugated in Egypt under the brutal and bitter and cruel hand of a brand new pharaoh. They were forced into hard labor, the hardest kind of labor. They had become an oppressed people, says the writer. And in this first chapter of Exodus, we're told that the people of God were tasked to build storehouse cities. One city carried the name Pithom, and one was called Ramses. Now, Pithom literally means the house of Adam, and Adam was the name of one of the Egyptian gods in their mythology. In fact, he was considered to be the very first of their gods, unlike the god called Yahweh, who is eternal. This god had this magnificent skill that he actually created himself. Try that. He actually created himself. So this one city gets the name of this pagan god, and the other city, Ramses, that name may be familiar to you, channeled Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments. Ramses was a common name to the 19th dynasty of rulers that governed Egypt. It was a name of power. It was a name to be worshipped. Now just think with me for just a moment. The enslavement of the people of God forces them into an idolatry of sorts. Forced idolatry, if you know what I mean. Where they are forced to build up these cities in honor of a pagan god. And that god's name would be known. And in honor of the so-called god-man Pharaoh, all the while the name of the god called Yahweh is silenced under the oppression of the people. What is more, they're forced to perpetuate Pharaoh's unjust economic policies, policies that Kevin uh, so well uh, introduced to us in the children's message. Right? Walter Brueggemann, an Old Testament scholar, put it like this. He says, such storehouses are not the outcome of economic good luck. They are rather evidence of a policy of coercion and accumulation. You see, the way it worked is that the Pharaoh controlled the distribution of food within these storehouse cities. And so he would become the sole arbitrator as to who got food and who didn't. And you can imagine what kind of power he yielded because of this, especially in times of famine, when the Pharaoh would rule over the whole region, discerning who gets food and who doesn't, who lives and who dies. You see, as it is with all forms of slavery, not only is the slavery itself immoral, but so too are the ends for which the slave is forced to labor. And so the people's enslavement in Egypt, from an allegorical perspective, becomes for us an insight, I think, into the true nature of our existence into what John Calvin, one of the great reformers, called humanity's total depravity. Humanity's total depravity. As the people of God were enslaved to Pharaoh, so are all of us. 
men, women, children of every race, of every nation, we are all enslaved, says the scriptures, to sin. Paul says it to the church in Rome, all, both Jews and Greeks, are slaves to sin. Later in Galatians, Paul says that we all have worn the yoke of slavery. In this season of Lent, in this season of reflection, we get back to the basics. We get back to the heart and the truth that grounds us in our faith and our life. And we realize that not one, as Paul says in Romans, not one is righteous. And as it is with the forced labor of the people which promoted the false gods of Egypt... And Pharaoh's oppressive rule, so too does our sin promote idolatry. So too does our sin promote oppressive systems in us and in our world. Idolatry and systems which injure with injustice, cruelty, and hate. These oppressive systems, I believe, not only come uh, to being because of the will of the collected whole, but they actually begin and start in, in the heart of one individual That systemic evil, I'm convinced, is born in the individual's sin-sick heart. A heart that is willing to collude and collaborate for their own wanton and greedy will. This sin-sickness, says our faith, is universal. And it's like an inherited disease. It is our inescapable lot. We are all held under sin's power. As Paul says in the seventh chapter of Romans... He says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells within me. Church, I wonder this morning in this Lenten season, do these words ring any truth in our ears? I mean, they, they certainly ring truth in our eyes. We would, we would want to look at the world and we, we would want to see the brokenness and the idolatry that is so prevalent in our midst. We can easily say, yeah, I can see the sin out there, and yet have we gazed inward to find that same idolatry and evil in our own hearts? We may want to rationalize it away. In our sort of postmodern milieu, we're really good at rationalizing this sort of thing. We call it idiosyncrasy. We call it biology. We call it evolution. We call it the normal, natural course of things. We call it anything but sin. Call it anything but a deep chasm between God and us, between who we have been created to be and who in our disobedience we have actually become. No self-improvement plan, no amount of human effort or agency, no measure of self-determination can liberate us from this power which leads to death of both the spiritual and physical kind. It leads us to a resignation to our bondage and resign to earthly and eternal dissonance between us and God, between us and our neighbor, even within ourselves. And the timeless truth that I think emerges within this text, at least on this first step of the journey during this Lenten season, 
is that just as it was with the people under the rule of Pharaoh, God is going to have to intervene for us. Lent begins reminding us of that truth. We come to it and say, we are dust and to dust we shall return. And the invitation for us in this hour is to name it as such, to say that we have become comfortable in Pithom and in Ramses, to say that we need God to rescue us, that only God can break the chains, that God will have to forgive us, that God will have to make things right, that God will have to liberate us from this oppressive yoke of sin that really does cause us to put our trust in idols and causes us to participate and collude and collaborate with evil and its power in the world. Lent reminds us that we cannot free ourselves. And so for those of us living in Pithom and Ramses, we can only cry out and ask God to save. Amen. Lent season invites us to journey a road that is frankly difficult to journey. It asks us to tell the truth about ourselves, tell the truth about our world. And so we must do such things.
trusting in the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ that we will know in full measure on that great Easter morn. But for now, the road is long, and we must journey on. And as we go, may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May his peace live inside of you this very day and every day of your life. Amen. And go in peace. Thank you.